Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. Okay, so um, we're sort of addressing a question that we were given on um, <clears throat> from one of our last uh, previous sessions. Um, I'll try and do the subject matter justice. Um, I'll hope within what I say the question is answered. Because um, sometimes you, when you're answering questions, the question is not necessarily when it's spoken back what the person meant, which you found a little bit of that on prayer. Um, you know, so if, if your question wasn't answered, please always feel free to come and say, actually, what I was really driving at was this point, because we can't guess that. So, um, so this, what I want to talk about is kind of connected to the question, uh, but also takes it into some other arenas that, that might lead us on to some other um, conversations and, and discussions. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to talk a little bit about something that is in the Bible that I said to Chris, in some ways, I don't want to, I don't want to poke this thing and make it alive for people for whom it's not alive, because because it's a pain in the butt, as it as it says in the book of something. Okay, it's got nothing to do with politics, but it is a a word in the Bible. I'm kind of going to deal with it, but I'm going to spring out of it now. Just just preempting that, hopefully we've learned or, or at least are learning from our experience in the lab and, uh, and beyond the lab that all scripture must be viewed by engaging with the overarching story and the undergirding principles. So this is important, I'm writing it on here because sometimes you take it, you take it in better, overarching story. See, the Bible is, is, in the context of its 66 books together, is a big book. Yeah. It's a big book. And uh, it's quite a complex book if you don't think a certain way. So I know there's many people who say, oh, I just don't get the Bible. Well, there are two things with that. One is laziness, okay? which you've always got to take that into account, okay? Um, the other one is, um, I have been raised listening to it, uh, being talked to about it, having it explained to me for all of my life. So it's easy for me to stand here and say, you know, just read the Bible. And, um, but I appreciate if, if you've not been sort of educated in, in how to interpret the way it works, then it can be difficult. There are also, for me, there are some parts of the Bible that I think, I'm going to spend a lot of time there. Um, Revelation is one of those books. I appreciate Joel having a crack at Revelation. Um, and I have views about that, but it's not something that is imminently interesting to me. And of course, some of the Old Testament books of, uh, of laws and and 
intricate prophecies about the history of Israel. And, you know, you can get bogged down in some of those things. Then, of course, we have the little issue that's come up of we have different translations of the Bible. Now, um, let, me, let me just say this about that. <clears throat> um, the majority of translations are good, okay? So I don't want you to get the idea because, because of some of the things we've said that you can't really, in general, trust the versions. I would say find a version that you like, that actually speaks to you. Now, within all of those versions, there will be some differences and some discrepancies, and there will be some errors, which I've explained to you come because of the, the weight of the theology that the translators of that version carried with them into their translation. So, you imagine if, if you think a certain way, all of you that are the translators, and you approach a text, you are going to without doing it deliberately, you will impose on the text um, your particular weight of thinking and theology. So I've told you they do international version, which I, I, I still like, um, was translated by evangelicals. So therefore, there are areas I can show you that have evangelical emphasis. Now, uh, if you said, what are those areas? I would say, don't worry about it unless we actually need to talk about it because it's not like on every page you're going to find these things. It's just, it's just the occasional thing or the occasional verse that usually when together corporately we're dealing with it, I will tell you right, that there is a bias on this or something's been omitted. Uh, you know, King James Version, we've told you King James wanted to make sure that that two things were not disrupted in the translation, the authority of the church and the authority of the crown. So therefore, in the King James Version, there is a, a bent that makes sure that you know you're subject to two things. You're subject to the authority of the church and you're subject to the authority of the crown. Now, it doesn't matter for most of it, only the bits where it would, it would cause you to have a different view of the authority of the church or the authority of the crown. So do you understand what I'm saying? So it's only in those occasions and, and um, it, mostly it's not going to hurt you. It's not like, you know, the Bible's wonderful except for three verses that are complete heresy. It's not, don't, it's not like that. It's just different ways. So hence the reason why I tend to use three or four Bibles just to cross-check things. I use the New International Version, uh, which, is, which is obviously a, a reasonably modern. 1984 was the first print of that. 2011 was the latest, which I don't like as much for reasons I could go into, but that's not the subject. Um, New King James Version, because it cuts out all the these and thous and all the old English language. Uh, the New American Standard, which most of you won't have come across, but... The reason I look at the New American Standard is because as a, as a critical text-for-text text translation, it, it really is, it, it's very good. So most, most independents, a strange word, independent scholars or people from across different fields would all kind of say that's a pretty good translation in the context of its accuracy to the language. Um, and then I'll occasionally use the message, which is a paraphrase. Of course, a paraphrase is not an exact translation of the words. It's an expression of what the translator believes the words were trying to say. Okay. 
Um, so, um, uh, English Standard Version is another one that's not bad. But the only reason I mentioned that is because I felt we need to iron out this thing of some of you thinking, which Bible would you recommend? Which is the most accurate? Well, they've all got the same kind of issues. And uh, you are not expected to uh, look at them from a scholarly perspective um, because I can recommend all of them, but we can find some things to talk about in all of them, but don't worry about it. So, so in all of this, it's not about the Bible translation, it's about in all of those translations there is an overarching story. So we've got to remember that, and there are undergirding principles, which I could also write on here, overarching story which produces undergirding principles. And of course, the other thing that I've said to you is that, that we should have learned now that we don't look back at Scripture from where we are, but we look forward through Scripture from where it is, okay? So one of the problems with the development of dogmas, you understand what a dogma is? A dogma is not a, a dog's mother, okay? A, a dogma is a position, an intransigent position that you take on a given subject, so when a person is dogmatic, they push their point and are not open to receive any other input or information to change their mind. It's a dogma, okay? Um, and so the problem is when we look back at Scripture from where we are, we tend to create all the dogmas that have, uh, that have bothered the church because we're looking back from the wrong place. So we use that to confirm where we are and what we're thinking. What, what I've tried to teach you is we have to go way, way back, right to the beginning, which means we start at Genesis and the story pre-Genesis, and we look through Scripture from where it is, not, from, not back from where we are, but forward from where it is. So, so when you read Paul and his letters, you don't look back at Paul from where we are in 21st century Western world. You look forward through Paul the, the scriptures where it is at when it is written, that will protect you from buying into some of the nonsensical things that become important to the church that are not important to God and therefore cause us to, uh, to have division. So we've understood this thing then. There is an overarching story. If you get the overarching story, what you do then is you measure information and revelation against the overarching story. Of course, within that overarching story is one critical thing that sits above it. Massive statement, God is love. Not God has love, not God loves, but the very essence of God is love. So, if God is love, the overarching story is going to reflect this. Which is why then we are fully authenticated to question how some things are written, why some things are written, because if they don't reflect this, that God is love, in the overarching story, we then have to excuse them by making up things that say, God is love, but he can still do mean things. God is love, but he can still massacre people. Now, of you know those two don't, don't fit well together? So, so we have to, if we're looking forward from where it is written, 
the love of God and from the foundation of the world, then it allows us to look at some of the more difficult passages in the Bible and say, possibly, I don't know what I make of that. But it's just one passage in the whole of Scripture. So it's not as important as it appears to be, because if it was supposed to be clearer than that, it would be. But it's written by people addressing an issue, and I'm looking, they're writing it from where it is at, not from where we're at. Understand that? Does that make sense? <clears throat> so, so I want to wrestle with a couple of things that take us on a little journey just, just for a little while. <clears throat> We've got the question which, uh, which had... Um, <clears throat> well, I'll give you the, these two questions and I'm going to spring some thoughts in. One of them was, <clears throat> are the people who are made holy the elect? So we'd read a scripture about people who are made holy. <clears throat> the question is, are they the elect? Now, some of you be like... Um, but this word elect has been a battleground within Christianity for more than 500 years. The, 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 the latest, the, the most recent strong proponent of what I'm going to talk to you about was a guy called John Calvin or Jean Calvin, because he was French. <laughs> Which sounds much more exotic, doesn't it? <laughs> I'd go by the French name. <clears throat> uh, Jean Calvin was, a, was a, a disciple of Martin Luther. And um, he went to be the Bishop of Geneva. And uh, he began to teach some things and write some things. And what came out of it was something some of you will have heard called Calvinism. <clears throat> and uh, well, I'll, I'll mention briefly about that. I really don't want to bother you with all the... Because for some of you, it's like if, you've, if you don't know anything about it, you've not heard about it, then I don't want to worry you with it because it's like it's, it's superfluous to your journey. But we will say a little bit about it. And um, John Calvin's greatest influence in development, developing his theory in Calvinism was Augustine. So we're, we're back to the 4th century. And um, basically at the root of that <clears throat> was something that, that everything is ordained by God. Everything is decided by God up front in his foreknowledge. And um, Yuri, the chosen to be blessed or you're chosen to burn. You know, I'm summarizing it very coarsely in layman's terms, but that's the top and bottom of it. You were either chosen by God because he decided to be saved for all eternity, or if you're not chosen by God, there's nothing you can do about it, you're going to hell. Okay. You know, overarching story, God is love. How's that work for you? So the other little part of this question, which I'll just read, because then we're going to wrestle a little bit with this. Are they, the brothers and sisters, therefore the only ones qualified or sanctified to pray in the hope of receiving a reply from the Father? Simple answer to that second one, no. Um, anybody who prays in faith can receive from the Father and I said to you, the rule of thumb, whether you think you're in or out or up or down, um, is what are your words saying about God rather than what are your words saying to God? Which is why there are some wonderful prayers that are, are not about much, but are saying a lot about God. 
about the honesty, the kindness, his receptiveness, his goodness. So I told you my, my most common prayer for the last 13 years has been Jesus help me. Okay? That's not very complex, is it? Or deep theology, and yet it's profound theology. Jesus help me. So I've, I've, I, don't, I don't tend to use a lot of words on explaining things, and that's, that is no disrespect of using words. I think we, words are good. I've said prayer is very often so we can express from within, and God loves us to express. So, so some of us have lots to say, and some of us don't have much to say, so you think you're not a good prayer because you don't have much to say. But those who've got lots to say need to say it because that's what's inside. Those who haven't got much to say, Jesus help me is a really good prayer. Okay? And we'll, 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 access, we'll access whatever the favor of God is in the context of your life. So, the word included in the question is this word elect. Now, the word elect is a word that describes a state or condition. Are you elect? Are you the elect? And uh, I want to look at what does it mean and, and why and where does it occur. It, it, it actually means in the Greek, in the original, to choose or to set apart, or of course the word elect, choose, set apart, elect. Now, uh, one of the reasons this can be popular is because we all like to be chosen. We all like to think we've been chosen, and the only value in being chosen is when somebody else isn't. Otherwise, being chosen has no value, does it? So, some of these thoughts can become popular because um, we like to be chosen and think somebody else wasn't. <clears throat> um, the interesting thing is, in, in the context of Calvinists, those who are of that stream of thought, believe that they are the elect, the chosen of God, and because they're chosen, uh, they're definitely going to be saved because God chose them. Um, but if you weren't chosen, there's no way you can be saved because you were never chosen. So grace will never touch you. There's all these kind of nuances, but I often say I've never met a Calvinist who ever believed they were out. When I meet a Calvinist who says, I believe it's all preordained and only those who are elected and chosen will go to heaven, but I'm not chosen, I might give a little more weight to it. But funnily enough, everybody who pushes this are always in. Why? Because I'm chosen, but you're not. Grace chose me. God chose me. So you can see why I have some fairly big problems with that. So what does it mean and why and where does it occur in the context of Scripture? Because they didn't pluck it out of the air. Okay, it's there in the Bible. Um, so this word elect is used in the New Testament about 15 to 20 times, depending on on the version that you're using. So it's not, it's not a massively used word, but it does crop up and crops up in some fairly important places. Another word that goes with that is the word predestined. So this word also crops up, predestined. Pre this is important for us to understand, I think even more than the word elect or election or elected. Because predestined means that you, it, all of it, 
is predestined in what happens. So therefore, nothing happens that was not pre-planned or pre-ordained or pre-conceived or pre-destined. Therefore, if you were to carry this Calvinist idea um, to the extent that they believe it, everything is predestined. Good and evil, everything is predestined. God planned it all. Well, you ought to start to have problems with that already before I even talk about it. Predestined has four to six mentions, depending which version of the Bible you're looking at. And uh, it's, oft, it's often linked to another word, which is, which is the word, let me write it on here. Because for predestined, you have, oops, four, is foreknowledge got an E, Jen? Foreknowledge. Knowledge, it does, does ledge have a D as well as the G? Sorry, I'm writing up here now, I can't, there we go. Foreknowledge. Because for there to be predestined, there has to be foreknowledge. Can, can you see now where Augustine began to develop his thinking about God is omnipotent, which is God is everywhere. God is omniscient, um, all knowing and God is no omniscient is all powerful omnipotent is all powerful omniscient is all present there's omnipresent right whatever those omnis are whatever they are the basic concept is that, that God is everywhere God knows everything uh, God is all-powerful. So, of course, there are, there, are, there are little philosophical arguments about that, that if God is all-powerful, can he create a rock that he cannot lift? Because if he's all-powerful, he can't create a, lock, a rock that he cannot lift, but then if he can't lift it, he's not all-powerful. So these are actually good philosophical arguments that we, we really should should wrestle with, which doesn't say God is not powerful, but it says the way that we have tried to portray his power has deficiencies in it. It has contradictions within it. That is not a competition to say God is therefore not powerful. It just says, no, God may therefore not be who you have defined that he is because you didn't get the overarching story and you're looking back at it from where you are instead of looking forward from where it is happening. <clears throat> so, so this idea that for something to be predestined, i.e. for something to be preordained to happen, you have to have foreknowledge in order to decide what it is that you are going to decide is going to be done down the track. So all, all these things, uh, election, predestined, foreknowledge, are all in the same category of, of thought. Now, What's interesting is, uh, well, it's interesting to me, might not be interesting to you, but the Greek for this word foreknowledge is a word that people like Jan Condi will be familiar with. Prognosis. Except in the Greek, it has one of them over it. That's just to show how clever I am. It's a new prognosis. 
So we're familiar with this word in, in the context of uh, sickness and disease, which is, it comes from that Greek word, prognosis means foreknowledge or forethought. And of course, in English, that's become the likely course or likely outcome of a situation. The prognosis, the likely course or the likely outcome of a situation is the, is the prognosis. So here's, here's my thought on that. It depends where you lean as to what you think, because if, if this is foreknowledge, that's one thing. Forethought is a very different thing. All forethought means is the thought that goes before something, which may not necessarily be a knowledge, because they have lots of thoughts that precede things that are not a knowledge about what will happen in that thing. They are just the thoughts that I have towards that thing. So one of the problems is if we, if we look from a certain dogma, we see foreknowledge. God knows everything. If we look outside of that dogma, we say that God has forethought. In other words, he can perceive what might happen and he can perceive what might not happen and that in forethought he is prepared for any eventuality not determine one eventuality so that to me makes God much bigger and it puts him into this category of God is love because he has forethought he can figure pretty good what your next move is going to be and because he can figure it by forethought he is never caught out he is never without the answer to whichever way you turn. So you could turn to the right, and he's in this forethought, he'd figured that out. We have the answer. You could turn to the left, he's figured it out. We have the answer. So it is a God who encompasses everything. The, all, the whole earth is filled with his glory, is what the Bible says. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Why? Because in his forethought, there is always a solution to whatever decision or choice I make as a human being, which is why he's always there, which is why if you do something wrong, he doesn't leave you, you don't leave him behind. Because in his forethought, he didn't plan that, but it's like, I figured you could do that as one of the options, okay? So, so that brings us more to our English understanding of prognosis, which is the likely course or likely outcome of a situation. So. You know, again, I mentioned Jan because, you know, Jan spent the life in the medical field. A prognosis can be wrong. I was reading yesterday about a man who was going to be dead in three months, 20 years ago. And uh, he, spent, he spent two and three quarters of those months preparing to die, spending all his money. <laughs> spent spent $50,000 in two and a half months doing all the things he wanted to do before he died and then he didn't die. And uh, his cancer that he was suffering from stagnated and then he began to go into recession and uh, 20 years later he's, he's, uh, he's still alive. So, with no money. So, so what I'm proposing to you is that, is that that version of prognosis is nearer to this overarching story of God's love than some of the views on election and predestination and foreknowledge, okay? So, 
Elect is only used in the New Testament. You won't read it in the Old Testament. What you will read in the Old Testament is a different word. Uh, and the word you will read there is the word chosen. So what you'll be familiar with, God's chosen people. So, or as one friend of mine puts it, the frozen chosen. He calls them the frozen chosen because they may have been chosen for a purpose, but they got stuck in that and never moved on from what it was that they'd got into their heads and minds. And so it became a dogma. So even, even the Judaism that emerged out of God's dealings with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob became a dogma. So when Jesus turns up, Judaism is a dogma. It's no, longer, it's no longer something that from forethought is looking at what's moving and where things are moving. It's now become a dogma. So, so they could say to Jesus, who was the promised Messiah, you're not the Christ. So instead of welcoming him, they crucified him because of the dogma. So, so this whole thing then, chosen, predestined, that, that's where it's all kind of fits. Um, so we've talked a little bit about, about Calvinism and, and, and Calvinism embraces and presses this stuff to an extreme and it homes in on a selection of scriptures that are epitomized by the conversation engaged in particularly two chapters in Romans, Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 11. Now I really don't want to bog you down by doing a verse by verse study of those chapters because you know, most of you will space out within the first five minutes. Others of you will think, I just don't care, which is fine. Um, and others of you, it will be a point of interest. And then one or two of you will say, that really helps me. Um, I would say there's plenty that you can find online of the arguments about that, you know, to look at yourself. However, I'm going to read a few verses from each of those chapters to give you a little taster of why the problem exists about words like elected and chosen and predestined and why some people have become obsessed with, am I chosen? Am I one of the elect? Because in their fear-driven fear belief system, if they're not, they are lost, are lost without hope. How's that work with this? Okay, so Romans 11 I'll read these from the NIV, um, and let's just read from verse 5. Romans 11, chapter 11. Um, you can read these at home, but you'll probably come out of it utterly confused, so read something nicer. We'll just touch this, all right? So too, at the present time, see, it's this kind of language, and sometimes I think, Paul... You're not helping. You're just not. But then what you have to bear in mind is he is writing this to a predominantly Jewish-based church in Corinth in the first century addressing the tensions and issues. So when we, when we look at it from where it is rather than from where we are, I still think, oh, Paul, you, didn't, you haven't helped by writing that down. So... 
So too, at the present time, this is writing back then, first century, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So certain people are thinking that's a few of us who are in. Right? But he says, and if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were grace, if it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then Israel's, uh, what then? When Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did, and the others were hardened. So these were picked, and the others were made so hard that they wouldn't know that they hadn't been picked until it was too late, and if some of them thought, I haven't been picked, they would understand they hadn't been picked for a good reason, because God didn't want to pick them. So they would be hardened. And I've heard all kinds of illustrations about that. And some of them are quite good, you know, about way back in the Exodus time. It says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, I don't know if he did. I don't know whether that was a way of describing it. It's fine. You know, and the illustration people have used is that, is that sun hardens clay and softens wax. So the same heat will soften one material and will harden another. So in essence, you couldn't say, and the sun hardened the clay. You'd have to say, it got hard because it was clay. It got soft because it was wax. Hence why I would say in the overarching story, there is so much said about the softness of our heart, the willingness of our heart, the receptiveness of our heart, because, because the sun will harden clay but soften wax. So the same thing that brings life can produce a different response according to our heart. So my key issue is, if you have a soft heart, there's not much you need to worry about in the context of theology. Because your soft heart will be melted by the, by the sun of the light that comes from God through Christ and you'll be okay. You'll be all right. So, so that, that's 11. And then, of course, he goes on to say some stuff like... like um, like the, um, uh, you know, the clay cannot say to the potter, make me this, but the potter decides what he will make of the clay, all, all well and good, until he says, so the potter may make vessels for honour and vessels for dishonour. In other words, you might finish up being a potty <laughs> rather, than a, rather than a teapot. Or even worse, you might just get chucked away because you thought you were useless. So, see how I mean? Paul's not helping. He's really not helping here. Um, now, on the other hand, he is. I'm being a little facetious and, and a little, little playful with you. But he's not helping in the sense of it tends to lean to say some are in, some are out, some are chosen, some are not. And hey, it just depends which side of bed God got out. Because he starts saying that you know, God, God, God basically blesses who he wants to bless and he curses who he wants to curse. Where's the rules? Well, you can't speak about the rules because he's God. So he can do what he likes. Well, how's that fit with this? So do you understand in the overarching story, the idea God is God so he can do whatever he likes doesn't work. Because you, you have to take this out. God is love. If God can do whatever he likes, love can't do whatever it likes. Now, it may have the power and it may have the ability to do whatever it likes, but it never will. 
because it's love. So, so do you see how when you come to some of these difficult things, you, you can't take them in a sense on what we would call face value. You have to look at them from where it's written and say, okay, so he's dealing with some people here to make a point. Now, I'll show you the point a little bit when he gets to chapter 9, which is before chapter 11, so that's probably the wrong... Yeah. But just remember, if you're Eastern, you read from right to left, not left to right. So it's just the best way to explain it. Romans chapter 9, verse 11. He's talking about um, Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. And then Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah had Jacob and Esau. Okay. Now again, I'm, I'm not going into this in depth, just that's the picture. And Jacob and Esau were twins. Now, the only reason I give you that is because you need that just to make sense of this. So verse 11 of Romans chapter 9. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written... Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He's really not helping Paul, is he? He's not helping at all here. Now that Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, is another quote that the people who were listening to him would be familiar with from the book of Malachi that doesn't mean what you think it means. It's not that God hated Esau as a person. It's that God hated what happened from the people who came out of Esau's loins and became a people. So God says something about them and something about Moab in the book of Malachi. But we're thinking God personally loves Jacob and personally hates Esau. So you see how we can so easily get And it's like, Paul, you're not helping. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, Paul, you're not helping. I'm sorry, mate, you are. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, again, if you're looking back at that, it means something to us that leads us down these lines of thinking. We are elected to be part, not by any choice of our own. We only accept that, that we are chosen and we are therefore predestined by the foreknowledge of God. So basically in here tonight, it would be, if God chose you to be in, you're in. If he didn't, I can't help you, I'm sorry. You're going to burn. And that, that really is the sum total. So, so, When we put this back into context, it it means something different because it doesn't work with the overarching story. It doesn't work with God who is love. So so my questions would be chosen by whom or what and in what way and for what purpose. How does all this complicated thing work? But if you look carefully, you'll see the whole point of Paul's argument, which again, we're not going into both those chapters and some other scriptures, but the whole point of Paul's argument is that we do not qualify by works or by genetics, i.e. being one of the chosen frozen, but by grace through faith because of the work of Christ. So here's how he finishes Romans chapter 9, which shows you why that is important. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. 
So having said all that stuff, what shall we say then? Or in other words, he's, he's posed you all this stuff about mercy on whom I'll have mercy, compassion on whom I have compassion, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. He's posed, just posed you all that. And then Paul in his, Romans is a very academic and clever book. Paul then says, okay, now I've posed all that to you and you're thinking we're elected, we're chosen, if we're chosen it's foreknowledge and we're predestined and it's all fixed. And He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles, non-Jews, who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. So, so the ones who those people were believing would either struggle or be outside, Paul's saying, here's what we're going to say, they're in. The people you thought were out are in. But Israel, those who were the chosen, predestined, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, or the law, let's just call it the law, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, I'm reading this from the New King James, incidentally. Sorry. I'm reading this from the New King James, Phil. Sorry, mate. Because it's a little clearer, hence the reason why I use all these Bibles. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. And then he says, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, and he now quotes another verse from the Old Testament, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offence, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So he said, here's the problem with all your thinking about this. There is a stumbling stone. And that stumbling stone, if you buy into this, will offend you. It will offend you because it will show you that we are nearer to this kind of prognosis, the preparation for what is happening. We're nearer to a forethought that works with humanity to embrace us in our weakness and bring us in than we are to some fixed, rigid election process of you're chosen, you're chosen, you're chosen, but you're not. Of predestination and foreknowledge. Now, so, 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 so Christ is a stumbling stone in that thinking, which is a wonderful principle. If you follow that, you're going to fall over Christ. But some of you will curse and swear because you don't like falling over Christ. Well, Chris and I have fallen over the stumbling stone so many times in the last 13 years. Come out of it with a bloody nose. And a bruised ego. Because you fall over the stumbling stone of says, Christ says, okay, so you've understood it this far, but it's better than that. So you've understood it this far, but it's better than that. So Christ becomes the stumbling stone. The overarching story, remember, all hinges on, on Christ. All hinges on Christ. Remember from before the foundation, of when remember we talked about from before the foundation, both ways, it works all ways. Christ is the center of it. And of course, he is the ultimate expression of God's love. God so loved the world that he gave, okay? So, um, at the root of this whole debate is another issue which we, we have to address because it will come up in different circles 
that you move in. And that, that issue is sovereignty of God. I was raised with that phrase, God is sovereign. The, the be all, you know, the one size fits all answer to anything we didn't want to wrestle with, God is sovereign. God knows what he's doing. Well, I've learned to be honest enough to say, sure as heck, doesn't look like he knows what he's doing. If I interpret it through the lens that you have given me, I'm going to explain that in a moment, show you some little word plays that, that will help you to grasp that. So to believe all this... You have to believe that God is sovereign in the sense that God is absolutely in control of everything. Well, I've said before, and I make no apology for this, if God is in control, he's doing a rubbish job. You know, go, and, go, go to the, 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 the kids in Syria, the people who've just been under this chemical attack, and say, don't worry, God is in control. And I would hope that they punch you in the nose... You know, how's it work? God is love. So, so, so there are some things that cannot, when you look from the correct place in the overarching story, you have to say, God is sovereign can't mean what we were raised to think that it meant, that God is in control of everything. Because he's not. Now, he could be in one sense, but then he can't be in another sense. Because once you've given a gift by covenant... That gift no longer belongs to you. So the Bible says in the Psalms, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But then in Psalm 117, verse 119, it says, it says, the heaven, even the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. So once you give something, to whom does it belong? So the Bible is very clear that the earth he has given to the sons of men. Now, if you, now, the Bible also says that the gifts and the callings that God releases, he does not pull back. They're honest gifts. So you can trust God. If God gives a gift, it's yours. It's not his. It's yours. So if the earth has been given to humanity, it's ours. So could God control the world? Well, it, it, to do it, he would have to be dishonest to his own gift process, and we could never trust him. Because if, if he has given the earth to humanity, but then he takes back control, what if he's given love and kindness and mercy and grace to you, then it would mean he can take back that love and kindness and mercy and grace, because you have to work the same principle, but we know he can't. So therefore, the sovereignty of God is something very much tied, particularly in Calvinism, to all of this. God is in control. God can do what he likes because he is God. Well, that's the biggest lot of nonsense So, the root of this, the sovereignty of God. Now, let, let, me, let me read you something. If he is totally sovereign, he created evil. Because if he's sovereign, nothing that exists, exists without his sovereign power. So, if God is sovereign, then God also created evil. If evil could not exist without it being created, then it would be evil to hold anyone guilty of participating in something which would not have existed if you had not created it. So if he is sovereign in that way, he also created evil. Therefore, he can't hold us responsible 
for the evil that we did that he created. Do you understand? Let me give you some more. Therefore, God is equally responsible, if he is sovereign in that way, God is equally responsible for the good and the evil in the world, so he must be held equally accountable for both. If God is sovereign, you can't say, oh, God is good, look how he provided for this family. But then not say, but it was God's fault that that plane went down. Now, a Calvinist, unfortunately, sadly, which I'm not a Calvinist, would say to you, yes, God did ordain that that plane crashed. God did ordain that your baby died, and it's all for his glory. Really? All for his glory. Yeah, and God has chosen some, but he has rejected others. All for his glory. It's like, well... That's a strange kind of despotic mind that would feel that they are showing their glory by doing evil works or ending somebody's life or killing somebody or taking a baby. But an ultra-Calvinist would believe that because they would say that God decided that from the beginning. So here's where the nonsense goes. Well, you know, a child, will that child finish up in their terminology, heaven or hell? Well, God knows what they would choose to do in their life. So if they die as a child, they will finish up wherever they would have been had they lived and had the choice to, do you understand? All these gymnastics start to come out of trying to make all that sense. So, so, so these people also believe that everything that happens has been preordained by God. Now, I ask the question, how does that fit with the overarching story of redemption? Of God's patience? Of God giving himself? Of God being love? You have to look from here back rather than look from there forward in order to have that conclusion. So, so if that's true, then God is equally responsible for the good and the evil in the world, so must be held equally accountable for both. Whatever good or evil is done by the creature, the created being, the creator must be held ultimately responsible. So if this is the case, God should go to hell for all eternity because he's ultimately responsible. Yeah. And no human should be held to account for anything if God is sovereign. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does that make sense? So is God sovereign in the sense that he is a ruler and king and has power and can do things? Yes, he is. But is he sovereign in the way that this kind of doctrinal thinking has presented him to be? No, he is not. He is a God who comes down to walk with humanity through creation not dictate for humanity over creation, which is why the whole issue from beginning, Father, Son, and Spirit, Adam and Eve and God is all relational. So a guy called Arminius, who was around at the similar time to John Calvin, who birthed another stream of thought called Arminianism. So the two opposing forces are Calvinism and Arminianism. We were simply taught when I was growing up that Calvinists believe you didn't have a free will, that everything was preordained, and Arminianists believe that you did have a free will, and therefore it was by choice. That, that's an oversimplification of the, of the issue, but um, Arminius, who was the one around who Arminianism 
started said this, which I think is good. This is why Arminius stated that if Calvinism is true, not only is sin not really sin, because basically you were, it was created, you didn't choose it, and you were made to do it because of the election, because of the predestination. Not only is sin not really sin, but God is the only sinner. How have you grasped that? If Calvinism is true, all this, where sovereignty of God, predestination, foreknowledge, not only is sin not really sin, but God is the only sinner. So how many of you know that can't possibly be true? Right? It's not. Okay. So, there are three areas that open up for thought, and we, we may want to take a little time, not, not tonight, to talk about these, but I'm going to write them on here because they're, they're quite interesting. Um, one of them is sovereignty, so we'll write that again. Sovereign... So what do we really mean by that? How would we interpret that in the context of God's interrelation with creation? Uh, the other one is something that I've just forgotten. Oh, providence. Providence. And then there's a third one. I'll just give you a little explanation for this in a minute. The third one is governance. Okay, Governance. These three things, sovereignty, providence, and governance, are all connected. The reason they're all connected is because we have to define what we mean by sovereignty, which is to do with what God can do. Okay? This is all about what God can do. The other one, the next one, providence, is about what does he provide within that doing? So in what God can do, what does he provide to make that all work? And the third one, governance, is how does he govern what he provides? So we have three lots of things. You know, what, what is the, it's the, um, uh, what can God do? What does he provide and how does he provide? And in, in order for what he can do, in a sense, to be done, and governance helps us to understand how he governs what he provides, what governs this whole process. So we might look at that a little more as a, a subject matter, but I want to just come back to the question and say one other thing about that, okay? Because part of the question uh, had within it, um, are people made holy, are the, are the people made holy the elect? Well, first of all, I hope we've answered that we don't see elect in that sense. We see elect more in this issue of we're in the forethought of God. We're in the possibilities of what can happen. and He'll never leave us or forsake us. But I want to talk about this holiness thing for a minute because it's a word, again, that crops up regularly in spiritual Circles, church circles. It's a word that intimidated me for most of my life. <clears throat> because I was taught that the objective of my Christianity was to live a holy life. Um, holy life being the words that we use separated from the world. 
which being interpreted was, my objective was to be morally perfect. And while ever I was not morally perfect, I was not really acceptable to God. It's a little bit like, it's a bit like the kid that you don't really like because they don't do what pleases you, but you have to like them because they're your kid. So we had a God who had to like you because you're his kid, but, but he doesn't really love you in the sense of what you do. So, so all this stuff, that, and, and all of that was because um, we, we were led to believe holiness was something you achieve, that you achieved a holy life, when actually holiness is not something you achieve, it's something you receive. Like the whole overarching story, it's not about what you achieve, it's always about what you receive. Okay? Never about what you achieve, always about what you receive. So God keeps turning up in the prognosis, in the forethought, prepared to deal with people, not according to what they achieve, but according to what they're willing to receive. And the more they received, actually, the more they achieved. But their value was not in what they achieved. Their blessing is in what they received. And so all honor goes to God because you know you didn't achieve it. You received it. And holiness is not moral perfection. Let's get that one. We've said it before. Holiness is not moral perfection. Whenever holiness is, is presented as moral perfection, it is really, whether it comes from a good heart or not, is a, is a, is a way of controlling people by showing people they're not good enough, you're not doing enough, you don't have the right stuff, you don't learn the right things, and it becomes a means of control. If holiness is moral perfection, it's also funny, just like I've never met a Calvinist who was out. I've never met anybody who preached moral perfection who wasn't putting themselves forward as being superior to you. And it's also interesting that they only deem that the sins that you are committing need to be morally corrected. Now, let me tell you something practical about a house like this. We've got a lot more liars than we have adulterers. But if adultery comes on the scene, how many of you know we'll flag that up? but we won't resist lying, untruth, distorted reality. And yet it's interesting that in the same commandments that say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, don't commit adultery, it says don't bear false witness against your brother. When you carry a tale, when you believe a story, and you express that against a brother, you are as much a breaker of those commandments as somebody who murdered or committed adultery. My mother-in-law used to tell us as well from Revelations 21.8 that liars are the first in the pit. That's probably because there are so many liars that all the other murderers and adulterers can't get near the edge of the pit for all the liars. And I'm quite serious about this. We have to be really careful that we don't categorize things in a way that holiness is what I'm doing, but it's what you're not doing, Okay. All have sinned and come short. There's non-righteous, no, not one, in the sense of our own 
application and belief. So, so, so holiness is not moral perfection. It's a carrying of something that has weight, meaning, importance, and significance. Because the word holy doesn't mean moral perfection. In the Hebrew, it means, it means weight. It's a heaviness. It means importance, significance. So when the Bible talks about the glory of the God, it, it means the weight, the importance, the significance of God suddenly showed up in a tangible way. So it's not moral perfection, but a carrying of something that has weight, meaning, importance, significance. So that something that has weight, meaning, importance, significance is the righteousness of God in Christ, which you have become. Right. So let me give you another good verse. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. And this is in the NIV. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That was Christ becoming everything that we are so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when I am in Christ, not because I was elected to be in or out, but because God is love and we have an overarching story coming through, I become the righteousness of God. I become it. It's something that I am. It's not something I do. It's something I am so that when God looks at me, he doesn't measure me by what I do. It measures me by who I am, which is why even in my weakness, his power and grace works with me because what he sees is the righteousness of God in Christ. So Ephesians 1, uh, we'll begin at verse 3 from the NIV. Just this scripture and one more. Ephesians 1, verse 3 from the NIV. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Listen, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. So, how does this election choosing thing work when we get away from Paul messing us up because we're not in his context? When we step out of that context and we come back here, and look through, not back at it, but looking from it forward. Here's what Paul says to the Ephesians. He said, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. So we were chosen in Christ. It wasn't an issue of James, hmm, you know, but Barbara's pretty nice. and He chose us in Christ. So he looked at Christ and said, I am choosing humanity in you. We were chosen, we were elected, we were predestined, but we were predestined to be in Christ from the foundation of the world. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, listen, to be holy and blameless in his sight. So when we are chosen in Christ, we have been chosen in that choosing to be holy and blameless in his sight. So God sees us as holy and blameless. And that's in love, listen verse 5, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So are we predestined? Yes. But what is it that has been predestined? Like where I shop tomorrow or whether I get run over by a bus? No. What's been predestined here 
is that we be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. God has predestined that to be the process, which he has freely given us in the one, uh, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. In him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, it's the blood of covenant, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So not forgiveness of sins in accordance with the words that you used to repent or forgiveness of sins in accordance with how cooperative you are with the process, but forgiveness of sins in accordance with, God's, with the riches of God's grace. That kind of opens the door very wide, doesn't it? That he lavished on us, I love this, with all wisdom and understanding. The bit about with all wisdom and understanding means he knows exactly what you think, what you're going to think, what you might think, what you may do, what you possibly may end up doing. He's got all those scenarios looking at because of forethought. He can figure you out. And he figures you out when the odds are that you're going to get it right and he figures you out when the odds are you're going to make a big mess of it. But he does what he does in accordance, he lavishes it on us with all wisdom and understanding, which means he gets that, he knows that, he's already taken that into consideration and still lavishes his grace upon us. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. Let me give you a little knowledge on that. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. One of the arguments about this wrong sovereignty of God is those people also believe the Bible is infallible and inerrant, and therefore have to accept the verse on face value that says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The argument then is if God is sovereign, but he's willing for none to perish and all to come to repentance, then he is not sovereign and all-powerful because he can't even complete his own will, which was that none should perish and all should come to repentance. See the holes that are in this when you don't look from the right trajectory. So... Uh, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purchased, purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment or the NASB says the summing up of all things in Christ. When things are summed up in Christ, all these things come into effect. That's why if you sum everything up in Christ, all these things come into effect. Now see, if you're a sovereign predestined children, you're thinking this is some future event. But the actual Greek is when all things are summed up in Christ, it brings all things in heaven together under the one head, which is Christ. And these things that we've talked about reach their fulfillment in us. In him, we, also, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first open Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, which is the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance 
with a view to the redemption of God's own possession is what the, is what the, the New American Standard says. So I've kind of switched versions there. The other one says that you were marked in with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to give praise to glory. I like the New American Standard because it says, having believed you were marked in him with us, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. In other words, once you come into this, you are sealed in. Right? So, so, so it's not about any of this. You find this grace that is the fulfillment of all things and he says the Holy Spirit seals you in. You're sealed into this now. You're sealed into this grace. So it's not about performance. It's not about what you do. It's not about works. You are sealed into this wonderful place of, of grace by the Holy Spirit. So one of the verse, Ephesians 4, verse 23 and 24. I'll read this from the New King James, Phil. Sorry to have you bouncing about. Um, I won't read you the previous verses to this. It's talking about how we think and how we have been shaped by what we've practiced for a long time in what he calls our former life, you know. So we had a lot of practice at doing stupid stuff. And we don't always lose that overnight. But he says this in verse 23, Ephesians 4, New King James. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. What we are putting on was created in the very image of God according to what God is in true righteousness and holiness. And when we put that on, we have true righteousness and we have true holiness because we are created according to God's model and God's image. And then we live from that in the fullness of life with Christ at the center. So I think we've said enough on all of that. So choose life, okay? Father, help us. We love you. This is brilliant. Thank you for the grace. Thank you for what's been called so great, the salvation. And uh, I pray that like old John Wesley, in the 1700s, 200 plus years ago, when he said, my heart was strangely warmed, um, that that very description that he used will be our experience, that our hearts are strangely warmed because this is warming, wonderful stuff of the grace of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope that's explained some of that stuff. And uh, be blessed and we'll see you on Saturday. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.